Our second text in our series on the mission of the church is this verse, which today is called the great requirement. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This concept of the great requirement is packaged with two other greats in the Bible, the great commandment and the great commission, which raises a natural question. It doesn't beg the question, because begging the question is assuming a false premise and building an argument on that, which is a pet peeve of mine when people equate those two. Anyway, it raises the question, is it appropriate to think in terms of these three great things which we are to make our objective, our mission as a church? This whole series is on the mission of the church. And is, it, is that the right paradigm? Is it appropriate to think of these as our marching orders? Now, obviously, yes, you have the great commandment, which we Im- implicitly addressed last week when we talked not primarily about loving God, but we talked about loving your neighbor, which is the second half of that, that command. So that first one, the great commandment. Secondly, the second great is usually listed as the great commission, even though that's third in chronological order in these events in the Bible. We will look at the great commission in the weeks ahead. That will be towards the end of our series. But the third great is this one today, the great requirement. Is it appropriate to think of it the way it is being used today? In evangelicalism today, this verse is used to teach practically, and very practically, by the way, this is going to be far more sidewalk level than um, theory level. In evangelicalism today, this verse is used to teach that social justice is a requirement that must be included in our religion, and therefore must flow out into our lives. It must occupy the pulpits on Sunday, and therefore must occupy our lives and our minds and our schedules Monday through Saturday. It is taught that to simply preach and teach the Bible, well, first off, that will be equated with just preaching the gospel, which I don't know anyone who's saying just preach the gospel. They're all saying preach the Bible. And it is equated, it also means that faithfulness to God's word, preaching and teaching the Bible and being faithful to God's word is to preach a truncated gospel, it is considered preaching a half-gospel if you don't include social justice in your gospel preaching. Please note, the way this verse is used today is to say that social justice must be enacted and embraced in our lives. Now, do not be confused. Do not mistake this term social justice for justice. Do not mistake it for justice in the social sphere. Don't think that social justice means, well, social for, uh, justice for social people or things or society. It is very common for conservative Old Testament scholars at conservative seminaries to miss this minor detail and to not make a distinction in their definitions. I listened to a sermon from a professor named Michael Barrett, who is one of the most conservative scholars still today, and at the time, he was one of the most conservative scholars in one of the most conservative seminaries, not only in the country, but on the planet. And he preached a sermon on this text in 1997, and he freely used the term social justice, as though it meant merely loving your neighbor and doing justice in the social sphere. This is one of the many reasons that an enormous percentage of my classmates 
in any of the seminaries that I have been a student at, many of them have publicly gotten on the woke train in the last two years because the professors have not made these distinctions as they are preaching and teaching because largely the professors are unaware of these social and cultural issues because their time is spent in books that were written a long time ago and not paying attention to what's happening in society. What many haven't realized is that today, social justice is a specific term that has a specific and loaded meaning. Today, it is a political term. It is no wonder that countless millennials and Gen Xers have been swept up in the current of our culture. There is a military concept, which is called operational preparation of the environment, which has been employed quietly for decades. This is a long march through Western civilization that Anthony Gramsci envisioned, and all of these young people have been swept up in that current. According to Roman Catholic scholar Thomas Patrick Burke, he says it is true that the term social justice did not originally have a specific political agenda. So you could have conservative social justice or liberal social justice or socialist social justice. The original term and concept was coined by the Roman Catholic Jesuit philosopher Luigi Tapparelli Diazelio in 1843. This is the reason why I am citing a, Catholic, a conservative Catholic scholar who is breaking down that guy's stuff because he's not getting hung up on everything that is void of Protestantism the way I would if I analyzed his material. I thought it would be helpful to consider a conservative Roman Catholic scholar's evaluation of this concept that was first created by a Catholic philosopher and has developed widely through socialist and Marxist thought in the Roman Catholic circles into something beyond, not only beyond Roman Catholic circles, but beyond what it was originally meant. And it has spread throughout these last 50 years or so. Over roughly these last 50 years, the term social justice has taken on a specific meaning. It is not a vague term that can be applied either to the political right or political left or any, any place on the spectrum, but rather it is a very far left term that has become mainstream. The Overton window has arguably shifted more in the last 15 years than the previous 150 years combined. Now, if you're saying, Andy, what's the Overton window? Glad you asked. It is the range of acceptable thought and actions that a society has that range where you're like, okay, that's cool, versus, oh wow, this is shocking. This is so far out there. It means, this shift in the Overton window means that many key components of the platforms of politicians like Obama or Hillary that they ran on in 2008 or 2012, who were at the time very far left, those candidates today would be labeled alt-right, white Christian nationalist, or any other labels. Because if you ask them in 2008 or 2012, how many genders are there? What is marriage? Should our country have borders or should it be an open society? The list could go on and on and on, but the answers they would have given and they did give at the time would make them be labeled with those labels and names today. The consequence of this shift in the Overton window this shift of society means that today to reject social justice means to be the subject of ridicule, scorn, firing, canceling from various media platforms, 
being forced to resign, and also, in many cases, being excommunicated from your church. It's gone that far. It's pervasive in every aspect of society. Make no mistake about it. The term social justice is like a drop-down menu on a website, but it not only contains terms, but it also contains definitions. The scholar I cited before, Dr. Burke, explains in his book titled The Concept of Justice on pages three and four. During the 20th century, however, a revolution took place in the Western world's conception of justice. Our ordinary idea of it, which we employ in dealing with other individuals in the ordinary transactions of daily life, such as making an agreement or paying a bill or resolving a dispute or putting criminals in jail. A conception of justice at least as old as recorded history and familiar to all people everywhere was superseded by a new conception of justice which focused instead on society as a whole. In other words, he's saying that from the beginning of recorded history up until this shift took place, we had a consistent concept and definition of justice where we understood making transactions in daily life, having an agreement, paying a bill, resolving a dispute, or putting criminals in jail. All was understood under the the conception of justice. But that has all changed from focusing on the individual to now focusing on society as a whole. The question the new theory seeks to answer is not what is right and wrong for a particular person in a particular circumstance, but how should power be distributed in society? This question has now been widely elevated to the status of the main concern of ethics, the primary subject of justice, according to John Rawls, who's a celebrated proponent of this new theory, is no longer the individual person and his actions toward others, but the basic structure of society. So hopefully that's bringing back echoes in your minds of words like systemic justice, systemic injustice, those kinds of things the basic structure of society. According to the new theory, which goes by such names as social justice or economic justice or justice as fairness, or chiefly in the United States, this is a bit dated too, chiefly in the United States, the liberal theory of justice, justice demands equality of power in society. It is no longer merely unfortunate that some people should be poor and powerless while others are rich and powerful. It is unjust. Social justice is a demand that addressed to society as a whole and not to the individual. And as such, it is a demand that can be met only by the state. To make social justice into the basic principle of social order is to endorse the wholesale transfer of responsibility from individuals to the state. And inevitably, to endorse the expansion of the state and the increase of its coercive powers. The more one considers the matter, the clearer it becomes that redistribution is, in effect, far less a redistribution of free income from the rich to the poor, as we would imagine, but it's actually a redistribution of power from the individual to the state. Close quote. On page 179 of his book called Fault Lines, which is on the back table, Vodibachum cites 37 social justice issues that are identified by the current Catholic social tradition, which is what the previous author that I just referenced and the founder of the movement were both involved in, involved in that social tradition. 
I've combined that list, the 37 listed there, with six more that Vody also cites, plus one from me, to list them here. These things are considered social justice issues. I'm talking about all of this because it's the words in our verse. Do justice. What does that mean? Point one, consumerism. Point two, climate change. Point three, death penalty. Number four, economic justice. Number four, five, education. Six, gender equality. Seven, genocide. Eight, healthcare. Nine, homelessness. Ten, human rights. Eleven, human trafficking. Twelve, hunger. Thirteen, immigration. Fourteen, inequality. Fifteen, integral ecology. 16, interfaith, interfaith dialogue. 17, intergenerational justice. 18, sustainable development. 19, land grabbing. 20, liberation theology. 21, mental health. 22, migration. 23, natural disasters. 24, pastoral circle, which I looked that up. I didn't know what pastoral circle meant. Um, The pastoral circle is a method of recognizing, reflecting on, and responding to social injustice. It is based on the See, Judge, Act tradition in Catholic social tradition and has been influenced by those working with people in poverty in Latin America and in Africa. In other words, it's highly connected to liberation theology. It's kind of the pastoral practice of this Marxist theology that was spread throughout South America. Number 25, global poverty. Number 26, U.S. poverty. Number 27, racial justice. Number 28, refugees. Number 29, restorative justice. Number 30, racism. Number 31, signs of the times. Number 32, terrorism. Number 33, torture. Number 34, U.S. elections. Number 35, war. Number 36, water. Number 37, veganism. Oh, these are the new ones. Veganism, ableism, beauty standards, animal testing, body positivity, and COVID-19. Andy's addition to the list is also a social justice issue, the weather. I kid you not. A New York City pastor of a PCA church posted about this last week on social media. The weather is a social justice issue because black neighborhoods are 30 degrees hotter than white neighborhoods. I'm sure it has nothing to do with trees or anything like that. It it has to do with the people who are being oppressed who live there. But all of that is, we're, we're now coming to the end of my introduction. Considering our verse today, Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Is it that list? Is it the 40-some things there? And the drop-down menus, and when you click on those lists, which are all actually hyperlinks, because that comes straight from the, that Catholic website. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. How are we supposed to think about that idea, that verse? How should we think about it? What does this verse mean? What does it mean that this is what God requires of you? What does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to love mercy? What does it mean to walk humbly with your God? What is God talking about? What is he getting at? Is God getting into neonomianism? Neonomianism was a theological controversy from 100, 150 years ago where they developed this new law 
which was a form of works righteousness. It's connected to sort of the, the grandfather of our, some of our current concepts, final justification, new perspectives on Paul, some of these other things. They're all sort of connected in their ideology. When we say that God requires this of you, is this the neonomian thing? Did God add a new law that we have to keep in order to be saved or to be forgiven of our sins? Are we saved by our ability to carry a constantly growing pile of rocks up a hill in a wheelbarrow? And then perhaps unload it and then reload the wheelbarrow and then carry it back down the hill again. Also, how are we to relate this to the rest of Scripture? We may or may not address all these questions, but let's try. Micah 6 8. The book of Micah is one of the minor prophets, obviously. It's named after its author, Micah of Moresheth. Moresheth is a town in Judah, Judah is the southern kingdom. Moresheth is just south of the city called Gath, which you should have heard of in children's church or Bible time at your home or whatever about Goliath of Gath. Goliath was a Philistine. Gath is on the border of the Philistine country and Judah. So Moresheth is in that area. It is also about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So if you're looking for this on a map, the way you find Jerusalem is you find the Dead Sea, which is the bottom of the two seas, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. So you take the Dead Sea, draw a line straight across from the Dead Sea to the left, if you're looking straight at the map, then you will find Jerusalem. It's pretty much parallel to the top of the Dead Sea. And then let your line kind of uh, work, work its way down about 20 miles or about an inch on your map. And there you will find Moresheth. This is where he lived, where he ministered. His ministry spanned from about 750 BC to about 687 BC. Remember, the numbers go in reverse order because it was BC, not AD. The book that bears his name, Micah, is a series of oracles, a series of messages delivered over the course of his ministry. The general theme of this book is about judgment and salvation. These are common themes in Scripture. I would argue it is the theme of Scripture. There is no greater theme than judgment and salvation. It begins in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. Judgment and salvation. This common theme of Scripture, this key theme of Scripture, finds its its end in the cross of Christ. Micah's prophecy frequently condemned the sins of Judah and Israel the southern and northern kingdoms. In large part, the people have rejected God's word and God's law, and they have done this again and again and again. And that's what you see here in Micah 6, where the the first paragraph, the first five verses, God is asking the people in verse 3, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Like, what... What are you saying about me that like I'm the one who's giving you problems? You don't want to follow my law. You don't want to obey me. You don't want to do right. Instead, you're doing wrong. You're sinning. You're going back to Baal worship and Asherah. You're worshiping false gods. You're violating the law of God. You're violating the commands I've given to you. How have I wearied you? This is a tiresome thing. 
I brought you up from the land of Egypt, verse 4. I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and, Mir- Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what ba- Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. He's reminding them of his salvation and judgment, and he's pointing to their own history, saying, look, guys, this is what has happened in the past. This chapter shifts in its tone from being the voice of God to being the voice of the prophet, here in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord, says the, the prophet, and bow myself down before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to bring certain sacrifices of certain types. They're supposed to come before the Lord and offer these things, and Micah is saying, all right, is, is that what I need to do? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? If you're supposed to bring a, an oil offering to pour it out on the altar? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? That's his most treasured thing. Is his firstborn, his firstborn son, should, is, that, is that what he should give? Is that what's going to make God happy with him? See, the larger issue at play is the people are going through these rituals. They're continuing to worship. They're going through the motions. But their lives don't align with the beliefs that they say that they believe. They're being hypocrites. The nation is being hypocritical. In other words, they're living like pagans Monday through Saturday, or in this case, Monday through Friday. And then Saturday morning, they get up, they put on their suit and tie, and they look themselves in the mirror and say, all right, now I'm ready for church. Now I'm ready for God. Now I cleaned up. I washed my face. I washed, you know, I'm good. I'm good to go into the presence of God and put on a show. I'm, I'm ready to act. The worship of God had become a performance. But the reality behind it was fake. That's what's happening in this text. You offer your child in a burnt sacrifice on the altar to Baal or Molech on a Friday and then go worship God on a, that weekend. And you think that God's cool with that? That's fine. That's the type of scenario that's happening here going and getting involved in the temple prostitutes Monday through Friday. And then the weekend worship, you uh, put on a fresh outfit and you think that everything is fine. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? Verse eight, he has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This verse, Micah 6, 8, stands as the motto of the alcove of religion in the reading room of the Congressional Library in Washington, according to sources. I've never been, but I'm told that's what it says. Politicians have quoted this verse often in their election campaigns. If only more would practice it, says the commentator. Numerous accolades have been showered on this verse 
For example, one scholar says, this is the quintessence of the commandments as the prophet understood them. He's summarizing all of the commandments, all of the Old Testament, all of the law of God into this verse. Another scholar calls it the finest summary of the content of practical religion found in the Old Testament. Someone else observed that the rabbis who commented on this verse in the early centuries of the Christian era called it a one-line summary of the whole law. No sermon on this text would be complete without a consideration of the specific commands contained in here. So, let's look number one. Justice. The ESV translates these three points, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Number one, justice. The word translated justice is the Hebrew word mishpat, which is the classic word for justice in the Hebrew scriptures. It's the main one. It's it's the standard term. It's found over 400 times in the Old Testament. Boyce points out that to act justly is most important, for it does not merely mean to talk about justice or to get other people to act justly, but it means to do the just thing for yourself. Justice. Secondly, love kindness. The two words are translated love kindness are first Ahab, and the second is Hesed. The Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament explains the term translated Ahab in the following way. Accordingly, an affectionate feeling in the physical realm was applied to the emotional stipulation which produced it. If this supposition is correct, then the emotional experience is the germ cell for the development of the concept of Ahab. This last statement seems to be supported at least by the fact that this emotional feeling which flowed out of one's uh, perception is contrasted with hate. If you hang out with me much, you'll hear me say things like, you know, love's not a feeling, it's an action. Love is, you know, various, like 1 Corinthians 13, that's what love is. But there are different concepts of love in the Old Testament, and the one that is used here is in the feelings, in the heart level, the emotions. God wants us not simply to act with mercy, but to love it with our hearts. The thing which gets us excited, it fills our hearts with warmth and joy, is this mercy. Now, when we say mercy, what do we mean? Does this term mean abolishing the police, closing prisons, tilting the scale of justice to change the outcome of a sentence because of a variety of social justice things that people tell us we need to do? I will argue that's not what it means. I'm sure you're surprised by that. The word mercy is the word hesed, with a sound. I'm not that great at saying, but hesed, translated kindness, is the word for covenant-keeping loyalty. It is often translated in the King James with the set of words, loving kindness and tender mercies. It's throughout the Psalms in the King James. Out of all the single words in the Hebrew Old Testament, this word hesed, 
most powerfully represents our New Testament concept of grace, the grace of the gospel, the faithfulness of God to his covenant. Covenant-keeping love, covenant-keeping loyalty, loyalty to God's redemptive covenant. So when we say love mercy, what that means is in your heart, in your passion, have a love for the covenant-keeping love of God for his own covenant of redemption. Love the gospel. Love salvation. You see, there is only one way for sinners to be reconciled to God. And we're all sinners here. Every single one of us is a sinner. We all need to be reconciled to God. If we are not reconciled to God, we will stand before God on judgment day and it will not go well for us. Our only hope is found in Jesus Christ, the provision which God supplies. See, God the Father, Son, and Spirit dwell together in eternity past with perfect love, harmony, joy, communion, fellowship. And they made an agreement, a a pact, a covenant of redemption. They would save their people. There would be a fall, there'd be a creation of the world. And then they would send, the Father would send the Son into the world. He would take on a body. The divine Son would become a human. And he would walk on this earth, a sinless life, perfectly obeying every law of God that was ever given. He fulfilled them in righteousness and in justice. He perfectly did all of that. And then he went to the cross and he died as a substitute. He took our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, on our account, that we might be made or be counted the righteousness of God in him. That's the only way that sinners can be forgiven is to have God the Son stand in the place of sinful human beings. You see, we are sinners and we have no place to stand before a holy God. So we need a mediator and that mediator needs to be both God and man in order to stand before God and to stand on behalf of men. So you need the God-man, Jesus Christ, to be our perfect righteousness, to be your perfect righteousness, to obey the law for you. When he died on the cross, he died in our place and on the third day he rose again. And when he rose, he rose in victory and he conquered sin and death. And now he lives forever to intercede for us. He is a perfect high priest. So when we sin in our daily lives, even those sinful thoughts we're having right now, Jesus advocates for us. So there is no punishment for us because Jesus has paid that price. This is the covenant-keeping love of God. For God must be true to himself. Jesus must be true to his covenant. For if he is not, then we're on the line. Our lives are on the line. We will experience some kind of double jeopardy and God will have violated his own covenant. So what this second point is speaking of, to love mercy, is to love the mercy of God, to love the kindness of God, the covenant-keeping love of God. This is what God requires of you. Do justice. Follow God's word, his law. Love his gospel. And number three, walk humbly. Walk humbly. 
What does this mean? What does it mean to walk humbly? Now, there's a lot of misconceptions about this concept of humility and being humble, and some people view it as you know, beating yourself up, verbally lashing yourself, saying, oh, no, no, I'm the worst, I'm the worst, I'm the worst, and getting other people to compliment you as you talk bad about yourself. It's actually a form of pride to do that. Being self-obsessed in how bad you are at a certain thing is not humility. Is humility being a professional loser? Saying, I'm, well, we're, you know, I, I, I root for this baseball team and we're just the worst team. Like, I don't know, the Mets fans or something. We're just like, we're so bad. We're so bad. We're so bad. The Cubs fans, the Red Sox fans for all these like hundreds of years, or hundreds, but like a hundred years. And it was this joke about how bad the team was because they hadn't won in so long. Is that the meaning of walking humbly? Does walking humbly mean to take on a posture of pseudo-humility, fake humility? Does it mean to talk really, really nice and be the tone police? Does it mean to cry a lot? I'm just so sad, I'm so broken. Does walking humbly mean to be really, really empathetic? Is that what this verse is talking about? Again, hopefully you can assume that my answer is no. It's not what this verse is talking about. The primary Hebrew lexicon or dictionary that defines these words for us, um, called Hallet, defines this word humbly. To walk humbly means to live cautiously, to live carefully. That's what this is talking about. One commentator says that walk means to live, live in a certain way. And the Hebrew word for humbly is difficult because it is not the normal word for humility. It almost certainly does not mean humility. Probably the NIRV isn't accurate as any translation. Here it renders the entire verse. People of Israel, the Lord has shown you what is good. He has told you what he requires of you. You must treat people fairly, you must love others fairly, and you must be very careful to live the way that God wants you to. So walk humbly would be better rendered, walk carefully with your God, which ultimately means to be careful to live the way your God wants you to live. He has told you, O man, what is good. The good is identified. It is identified with performance of the will of Yahweh, to obey what God has told you. He has told you, O man, what is good. This is the view of the Old Testament throughout. Religion, the Old Testament religion, furnished the dynamics of ethics. It told us what was good. The saints of Israel knew nothing of doing, according to one scholar, the Old Testament saints knew nothing of doing good for good's sake. Virtue was not an end in itself, but only as a way to approach God. The embodiment of the highest good. Overall, this verse is often viewed as a uniquely powerful verse. But the reality is that all of these concepts are taught elsewhere in Scripture. This verse is not particularly unique. It is not uniquely unique. Certainly, this verse is beautiful in its construction and its language, but it contains no new revelation. The idea that this is some new teaching or some great requirement on par with the Great Commission or Greatest Commandment reveals a lack of biblical literacy. 
God did not come up with something new now that biblical revelation has arrived at the minor prophets. And certainly didn't teach something new now that woke evangelicals have rediscovered it in the last three to four years. Rather, this teaching is merely a restatement or summary of the Old Testament ethic that has been constant throughout. Living a moral, upright life, doing justice, having a love for covenant faithfulness, the covenant of the gospel, and walking carefully with your God are ordinary elements of the Christian life. These are the normal things of the Christian life. This is not some like secret magic bullet. The great requirement has the potential, like any imperative, any command, it has the potential to become a new law, which if we drift from our thinking and from our theology, if we drift, we may start thinking that we're justified by keeping that new law. Well, what's your life motto? My life motto is do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Got it tattooed on my arm right here. You ask people, well, what are the words you live by? Well, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. These are the things God requires of you. Well, how's it going? It's going great. I'm doing justice, love mercy, and walking humbly with my God. The reality of the law is that we have never perfectly obeyed it. We don't. We've never perfectly done justice. And we have certainly failed to rest in the fullness of God's gospel mercy. And our extent of that gospel mercy to others has been perhaps even weaker than our own embrace of it. The the, the mercy that we extend to others has certainly fallen short. And then how often are we reckless in our obedience to God's word? How often do we discard and disregard the word of God because we just want to do what we want to do? But we have a savior who always did justly. And he loved covenant faithfulness more than we could ever imagine. His love for the Father, we can't even begin to fathom. His love for the justice of God being upheld and maintained so that the Father's character would not be violated in order to forgive sinners. The love of the Son for the Father is beyond our comprehension. And the Son's walking carefully with his God also was the most careful walk of all. And so it's in him that we rest, it's in him that we walk, it's in him that we trust. It's in him that we live. And so these words, do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God, they don't have to be a hammer that is smashed over your head. You can hear them and say, yes, yes, that is true. God calls us to walk righteously and justly, to obey him. He calls us to love mercy, to love covenant faithfulness. And then he calls us to walk carefully with him. Let's pray.
Oh Lord God, I thank you that you have helped us as we've gone through this verse. Lord, I pray that you would take these words and apply them to the hearts of your people. And if there are any who are not saved, that you would help them to recognize that this is their only hope, this is their only plea, that it is Jesus and his righteousness has been made for them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in all of these things. Help us not to be taken captive by every wind of doctrine, every ideology that floats into our airwaves, crosses our screens, or into our ears. Lord, I pray that you would help us. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.